Well, we have the privilege today of hearing from one of our faculty who uh, has been has been on uh, faculty for about three years now, I think. And um, it's just wonderful to be able to invite Carolyn Weber up to the up to the podium. I know that she has uh, touched many of your lives in the classroom, and now she has an opportunity for all of you to hear from her. So let's welcome her as she comes. Good morning. This is so exciting to be here on a Thursday because I've always been a Monday, Wednesday, Wednesday person and Thursdays are crazy. <laughs> wow, there's such a hum. So um, I see new victims in the audience for how chatty I can be. So my, my current students and my former students know that I'm a chatterbox. Um, I really want to thank you for being here and to Chuck for inviting me and for this wonderful, thoughtful series on heroes of the faith and for the uh, gifts of the worship team as well, using their gifts to bless us. That's just lovely. Um, it was really wonderful to sit and praise. And I love my family and my children. I have four small children, but wow, I sat there with nothing sticky on me and nobody climbing on me. And it was just a treat. Um, <clears throat> so... I, uh, I would like to talk today uh, about a couple who are actually tremendously, who have been really tremendously influential. I'm going to try and get through without crying <laughs> because they have been incredibly influential on my faith walk. Um, they are also why I am here at Heritage, how I ended up at Heritage. And uh, they've also bolstered us out of my husband and I and our family at an extremely dark time in our lives <clears throat> and uh, so in general, I'd like to speak about the importance of the local pastor in our lives and when relevant, also his wife. Um, but specifically, I'm going to talk about somebody that I will introduce in a moment. Because first of all, I wanted to open with a story um, from scripture, which I have learned from my best pastors to always start with the word. <laughs> But it's a story that's always meant so much to me. It's um, Peter's betrayal of Jesus three times and how, this is again where we can't make it up in the Bible. I can't believe how, we, it, how it unfolds, but his reinstatement by Jesus later three times and then the command he gives um, to the elders in the church. So I just wanted to frame this as a background before I tell you who I'm going to speak about today. Um, so I'm reading from Matthew 26, uh, NIV 669-75, if you have it, where Peter disowns Jesus. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know that man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly.
John 21, 15 to 19 is an example of the reinstatement of Peter, where Jesus reinstates Peter. This is after the resurrection. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, which cracks me up because Jesus had denied him before, right? I love Peter. I think we all resonate with him so much. Everybody's either a Peter or a Paul, right? Or somewhere in that continuum. And, um, but Jesus is asking him a third time, which is both beautiful and witty (laughs) and incredibly gracious. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. The incredible amount of hope in bookending those two stories that the example of Peter gives us, that we can deny Jesus and deny him, even though we love him and we're trying our best, and yet Jesus still builds his church on Peter the rock. There's nothing to me more hopeful than that because Jesus knows our potential. He knows our happy ending in spite of ourselves. He knows what we are able to do. And Peter actually then asked to be, that was a prophecy of how he would be crucified. And remember, according um, to history, Jerome says, at Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom being nailed to the cross with his head downwards towards the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. So is it any surprise then that Peter would tell the elders this in 1 Peter 5, 1-4. To the elders in the flock, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Those are his instructions to those who will shepherd others. Many of you are studying to become pastors or ministers in some way, shape, or form, and the immense responsibility of that calling and that blessing, but also the ways that we can do it in our lives. But I wanted to give that framework because um, 
when Kent and I, when my husband and I left the States about eight years ago, uh, we left with high hopes and three children and selling everything we had. And we'd been um, down in Santa Barbara at Westmont College just prior to that. We left everything we had in Seattle, left our jobs, security, everything else to come to my hometown to spend some time with my elderly parents and to go into ministry. We had the high hopes, right? The <laughs> yellow brick road hopes. We're serving God. This is awesome. Look, God, what we're doing. And we got crushed, <laughs> right? Um, the way that most of us do when we face spiritual warfare, I think that particularly comes at us um, in ministry. And we did not see the train that was coming. And everyone has problems in our lives, right? We are told to expect those by Jesus himself, um, that there will be suffering. But, and I won't lay out everything that happened to us. We all have these kind of things. But in a very short time frame, in a few years, probably just in the first couple years that we arrived, um, we had a surprise baby, which was wonderful, um, that we didn't anticipate, but a very difficult delivery and some problems with him. And we were counseled to abort him along the way during the pregnancy. Uh, we actually lost the money that we thought we had um, in, a, in a business venture. Um, my husband then lost his job because it was connected someone, to somebody who was involved in a crime. Um, we had our own, one of our own children was the victim of a crime, a heinous crime in that, in that few years as well. I went through a very serious illness and we lost my father, too, who amazingly had come to the Lord about a year or so before he died. But all of that was happening. We all get those kind of when it rains, it pours, right? Really dark tunnel. <laughs> and I remember back when we were first packing up in Santa Barbara from Westmont, calling around, checking on churches, saying to my husband, I'm going to find us a good church in my hometown. I've gone here and there, gone here and there. But I did not grow up as a believer. And um, Village Green Community Church had come recommended to us, and I had popped in there once or twice before when we were visiting. Village Green Community Church in London, Ontario, used to be the library that I bicycled to as a child in my neighborhood, um, sometimes to hide and read and hang out, sometimes to get away from my father because he had violent outbursts, sometimes to take my sister and read with her. Um, I used to ride there. It was my refuge. And that building had been bought out by a Baptist church, and then eventually the church took over the whole building and replaced the library, and that was now Village Green. And I called Village Green from our living room in Santa Barbara, and a woman picked up the phone. I was expecting maybe to be a secretary or whatever. It ended up being the pastor's wife. So who I would like to speak about today and their incredible influence on my life and the way that a pastor and his wife can hold a whole family together and continue with them in their path in, in trust and faith is uh, John Korkadakis and his wife Darlene. I don't think if you search high and low, you will ever find anyone more humble than John. And he is razor smart. One time I asked John, I was working on a, a, a publication about wisdom, and I asked John for some notes on wisdom because he teaches the wisdom course. And I thought, like most of my colleagues or friends, he'd send me a short email or, you know, give me a quick call or whatever. John drops by with a file this big. 
I mean, it could kill a small animal if you dropped it on it. <laughs> Printed out, organized, no worries about using his ideas or copyright or anything like that. I was like, thanks, John. <laughs> and I love that metaphor for him because he popped by, you know, easygoing and brought it like it was nothing. But the first voice I heard on the other end of that line was Darlene's. And she answered questions about the church, and she was so warm and inviting that I knew right then and there, that's the church I wanted to go to, even though I had not heard the pastor speak. <laughs> because of her heart and the way she talked to me over the phone with a young family coming and everything at the time was such a big move. When I got there, I felt like I had already known Darlene. But as we arrived and these things began to happen to us, um, I had not grown up with fellowship. I had not grown up with a faith. I'd had the blessing of many amazing pastors. My husband in particularly had studied under Mark Dever. And if you know Mark Dever, he is like the opinion of conservative baptism. <laughs> so there's my husband going, we're going to a church that, you know, we've never even walked into before researched. You know, <laughs> I haven't read their website yet. What do you do? You just, we're going because you like the wife on the phone? And I'm like, yep. Don't you underestimate the wife, Betty. We're going. So like a good husband, he came, and he was like, okay, I'll go. And we never went anywhere else. We loved it. We loved John. Always he had the word out. Always for every sermon, it's not about him. It's really something that's hard to find, I think, in many churches or people. Because we are cities, including pastors. Pastors aren't perfect either. And there's lots of pastors that are trying their best or not doing well or whatever else. We're all human. But I'm speaking today about a pastor who consistently puts aside his own crap to deal with mine. <laughs> right? And all of ours. And his wife is part of that package too. And yet Darlene is incredibly intelligent and sweethearted as well and is very very ministering and a healing person because she's gone through an incredible amount of stuff in her life, and yet she is not a spotlight person either. They would probably be mortified that I'm speaking about them, but too bad. <laughs> so when I said to Chuck, should I keep it quiet? Should I let them know? We were like, we'll keep it quiet because they'll be mortified, but that's great. So our pastor, and if relevant, his wife, are really, I think, primarily five things to us. A keeper of secrets. A healer. A companion. A guide in the dark. Someone who is there for us when no one else is. Someone who walks with you. John and Darlene know my secrets. They have been there for so many things, and that's such a, that's such a uh, delicate and fragile honor from God as a shepherd. He has dedicated our youngest baby, and he has baptized our eldest child, and he has been peed on three times by my children, <laughs> and he kept coming back to have dinner with us. And I remember the first time I went to their home, I went downstairs to use their restroom, and I thought, you know, he's just so intelligent and, and sweet, and he's, and he's always quite, you know, 
um, clean cut and everything else. I went down to use the restroom and there is an awesome picture of John as a high schooler in the basement of his house where he has Bon Jovi hair. (laughs) It's awesome. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, that is really cool. But that was my pastor. Shot through the heart, right? (laughs) With the coolness of it. And during the, the, this time in particularly for us, that was really, really difficult. There were times where my husband and I couldn't breathe with some things that were going on. And uh, they had us to their home. They fed us. They fed us spiritually. They fed us lots of Greek food, um, lots and lots of Greek food. When, I, when my kids were so excited, I was talking about Pastor John and Darlene today because they call him Pastor K, Mrs. K, because Korkadakis is just a really hard name for you know, a four-year-old to pronounce. And my daughter's like, Mom, you got to wear your dress with the Greek, you know, design. <laughs> but we were at times where we literally couldn't see two feet in front of us. I don't know if you've ever been like that in your life, with just everything coming at you. If you haven't been, you will be very soon, probably by the end of November. And people who feed you, who, who bring you in, who you feel safe discussing anything about, who you can laugh with and cry with, who you can talk about anything, even your anger or even your fear or even your sadness or even your being upset with other Christians or disappointments, and they can hold you and be with you in that is such an incredible gift. And in particularly, I want to share um, uh, two stories with you. For one, um, it was Darlene. You kind of get two for the price of one, right, when you get the pastor's wife. (laughs) But it was Darlene who, when I was spitting up blood and going through my oral chemo, she would come early in the morning to drive me on short notice to the hospital with her grandson strapped in the back seat, feeding him crackers or whatever, keeping him busy so that she could get me there because Kent had to get the other kids or we didn't know how we were going to manage. That sort of service, that sort of amazing, non-judgmental offering to go with me to specialists when I couldn't pay attention so she could take notes because she knew it was a lot for Kent too. And she knew we were trying to take care of my elderly parents and all sorts of things as well. And she would come and, and do that kind of support, um, filling our fridge with food, um, everything from the very practical to the very spiritual. And when I was in the South, I talk often in the South because of just the different conventions and things. They call... A pastor's wife. Anyone know their term for them? Anybody been in the South? First lady. (laughs) And I love that. So when I speak at Southern churches and they're like, we're going to go open the door to the car for the first lady. Watch it. First lady's coming through. (laughs) They get her in and they get her comfortable way before the pastor. Right? Got to take care of the first lady. Darlene is my first lady. She's my family's first lady. She's my church's first lady. I keep a direct quotation from her beside my bed, and I have for many years. She doesn't seek the spotlight, as I said. She's only spoken a couple of times in our church alongside John, maybe with a marriage seminar or something along those lines. But I have a direct quotation that she did publicly share. She once said, When life is chaos, I am there before God. I'm calling on God and dependent on God to get me through. But when it is calm and I get through my day on my own, I don't talk or listen to God. 
as I should. She really helped me have a better understanding of trauma, of needs, of grief, of the things we face as a way to bring us consistently back to God and still always find redemption in the suffering. But trusting God will redeem that in ways that we might not understand. I think the only calling more demanding than being a pastor is being a pastor's wife. And during uh, this time as well, we lost another very dear uh, man, Mike Wilkins, Mike and Debbie Wilkins, who he was the pastor at West London Alliance, an amazing man and a lover of words. And I just love him and Debbie so much. And he uh, succumbed to cancer um, and was this amazing shepherd himself. And uh, he reminded me very much of sort of um, John's approach of just meeting people where they were at and bringing them what they needed and allowing them to feel what they felt before God, but reminding them over and over again of God's promises to bring us through that to someplace beyond our imagination and how beautiful it is. So the second story I wanted to share in particular with you then has to do with John. As I said, we came back. One of the reasons we came back was to have some time with my parents. And my father had been a problematic figure for me growing up. I was always close to him. I loved him very much. Um, in a thumbnail sketch here, my, um, my father was a very, uh, had grown up very, very poor. I mean, went to school without shoes, that kind of poor. With a single mother, his father had beaten his mother and, as a child. And, and his mother ended up taking what they had during the night and leaving and raising two boys by herself. She was 16 from Poland. My father was a self-made man, an amazing athlete, put himself through things, taught himself how, all sorts of things. He ended up being a pilot, an electrician. He was, uh, he was a self-made, very wealthy man with a very influential business in real estate. Um, and by the time I came along, we were quite comfortable. Many things happened as they do in life, and, and there were some issues, and there was a big um, fallout for him, and he ended up losing what he had, and he, as a result, also really had a, a breakdown and ended up leaving the family. My parents never divorced for many years because they were sort of loosely Catholic, but my mom essentially raised us as a single mom. When my father did come in and out of my lives, sometimes it was loving and sometimes it was violent. Uh, and my mother drank to manage that uh, chaos in her life as well. Um, when we came back and, and created more relationship with my father, I'll, I'll tell you probably the most restorative things ever created are grandchildren. <laughs> the very strategic witnessing tools when they crawl all over you. And we had a very healing time coming back with my father and, um, before we lost him. And he actually came to the Lord about a year before we lost him. But that, by the end of his life, in the last probably 30 years of his life, he was essentially homeless, or he lived in um, a very uh, inexpensive sort of subsidized apartment. Uh, his circle was quite small by the time we were uh, back home with him here. And when we had our surprise baby, we named our baby for him. The first church my father ever stepped foot in was John's. He showed up there after we talked to him about God and, and, and we'd had some amazing conversations with him. He showed up there. He got there ahead of us. He always somehow traveled by himself. He didn't want anyone to get him. He was quite 
ill at that point and, and quite frail. And he showed up. He beat us to the church. We didn't know he was going to be there. And actually, when we showed up, we, somebody at the church said, oh, there's an elderly man waiting for you. Um, we directed him to your row. He says that you owe him money. <laughs> we get in, and there's my dad. <laughs> Mismatched boots, you know, um, old winter coat, everything else. But he said, I wanted, I wanted to come. I wanted to try your church. He met John. He ended up, as I said, had his first communion in our church. I'm not making fun of people at all because when I did not grow up church going and when I still struggle sometimes to find where things are in scripture <laughs> or the right way to do things in church and, you know, heaven forbid, literally if you're Catholic, right, it's like it's really hard to follow everything. And my father was really uncertain and really unsure. And when he went to go take communion, he had the wafer and he was holding it and he wasn't sure if he should eat it or when he should eat it or what he should do or if he should have the juice or if he should have the, you know, what... what and he was really nervous, and then he turned, turned to me, and he said, do I, like, let it melt, or do I chew it? I don't know if I should chew the body of Christ. <laughs> and there's John. Couldn't be more gentle, more sweet, more easygoing, fully accepting. There was my father having his first communion, and I was just amazed. Um, my father... Uh, about a year or so later, had an unexpected brain bleed, and he was in ICU for several weeks and never regained consciousness. And he died after about two months. I was with him every day and um, read him the Bible and sang hymns, and he had some consciousness in terms of squeezing our hands and things, but it slowly deteriorated. When he passed away, I remember thinking, I want, my father had no instructions, and I thought, I want to do something in terms of a funeral, you know, or a service or something to commemorate him. And I knew that the circle would be really small, and I knew he didn't really belong to a church, per se, and that there wasn't sort of a regular format, right, of what might happen. And I was sitting with his body, and what do you do when you're sitting (laughs) and you don't know what to do? You text your pastor right? (laughs) And you see his wife because she'll reply to. And I didn't know what to do. I just want, I I want to do something to commemorate him. And John replied and said, I will do the service. And we had the service in the little funeral home chapel, which was very interesting because one of my father's favorite stories, kind of an inside joke between the two of us was the thief on the cross, the two thieves on the cross, the one that denies Jesus Remember the crucifixion and the one that says, remember me. And we, before I was a believer, that used to bother me. And that story bothered my father too. How, you know, and then, and I used to think, how can you sin your whole life and then be forgiven at the last minute? What a cop out. And when my father though was accepting Christ, he said, oh, I've been the thief on the other cross. How will he ever love me? How will I ever be saved? And we had a huge conversation about that with my husband And so that story had been really meaningful to us. And I get to the funeral home, and I am not kidding you. My father is laid out in the little chapel there, and I'm waiting to meet John. And John and Darlene are there, and they're helping me out. And the name of the chapel is St. Dismas, the chapel of St. Dismas, who is the thief of the right hand across the one who accepted Christ at the last minute and asked him to remember him. And 
The name is over my father's body. Praise him. They were excluding my brother and sister and I and our families and my children, including my little guy, my father's namesake, who threw up on my husband during the service. There were maybe eight other people present. John gave a full sermon. There were a couple of homeless guys, one or two people from my dad's building, a business partner who was a very, very established lawyer who still held my father in high regard, and us, and Gwen Penny, because she knew he'd passed and she came. And John gave a full sermon with full respect and the full meal deal. <laughs> and, uh, and Darlene was part of that as well. Your local pastor knows everything about you and loves you still. Even when he might not be in the mood. And his wife as well. And still, when I see John and Darlene, just looking at them, I feel home, regardless of where I am. And it was John who told me about heritage and his teaching here and his love for heritage and his love for his students and who opened the door for me to perhaps initially teach a course here in the midst of all that darkness. And then I drove with Marianne Vanderboom and commuted with another angel of mercy who helped me at a time in our lives when we didn't even have a car. It's amazing how God does that. No, Carolyn, I'm not just going to get you a car. I'm going to get you a ride with someone who provides fellowship. (laughs) What I love about the story of Peter, too, is um, that one of the very first things we noticed when we arrived at at Village Green, is that there was a young man named Peter, he's always been there, who had been rejected from another church because of his disabilities. And it was John and Darlene who took him into their church proactively. And he's always been part of our worship there. So, like I said, no one is perfect. John and Darlene aren't perfect, but they have embodied to us grace and truth. They've embodied to us the importance of the, um, the local pastor. And when I think about Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, sometimes we really overlook that psalm in the last few minutes here because I know that um, it can seem sometimes trite. It can seem like it's read all the time. It can seem like it's um, really familiar. But when we really think about it, of course, as the Lord is our shepherd, but also thinking about our local shepherds as our shepherd. And when I read it, this is what I really feel John and Darlene did for us and continue to do for others. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me full of Greek food in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. You baptize my babies, and you bury my father. 
My cup overflows, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As I close in prayer, I really want us to think about how our local pastors, the people that have been planted in our lives here, and their wives and their families, um, minister to us in ways that are very easy to take for granted. Sometimes we think of spiritual heroes as great, famous people, and that has its place too. And I do believe, like C.S. Lewis said, right, that um, we read to know we're not alone, and it's important to stay in conversation with those thinkers or those movers or those shakers. But it's also the local church pastor, the person who comes to you, who responds to your texts, who is there for you and knows your innermost struggles, who have been for my husband and I our personal heroes. Please join me as I close in prayer. Lord, our loving and gracious Father, we praise you. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name today at a place like Heritage, which seeks to know you better in all we do. God, we ask you to bless us here today, our campus and our ministry and our community. Thank you for those who are heroes of the faith to us in our everyday lives. I particularly give thanks for John and Darlene Korkadakis in my life, for the lifeline they have been to me and my family and for the influence and example of other loving pastors and their wives in all of our lives. We thank you for those who serve and love in ministry as Peter commanded them to do. We ask you to bless those who do not rest on the same Sabbath day as the rest of us, Lord. God, please bless those who shepherd us, watch over us, feed us, and care for us who move blurry-eyed from giving comfort at the side of a deathbed all night straight to presiding with joy over a wedding. Father, bless those whom we text when we cannot breathe. Bless those who rejoice with us and those who hold us when we weep, who come in the middle of the night, who stay with us when dawn seems it might never come. Lord, be with those who bless and bury babies, who comfort the elderly, who welcome the rejected, and see no life or need as too small. Bless those who carry burdens on their backs, Lord, others will never see, and who then minister to us as though we were the only one. Lord, provide for those who will never really make a lot of money, never really know a day off, never really retire, and who have spiritual battle fatigue. And Lord, bless mightily those women who have signed up to love, honor, and respect them, and are these things themselves as the two shall become one. And when you, the chief shepherd, appears, have these shepherds rest assured that they will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We love you, our Father. Amen.